Hey, I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Ashley. And you're listening to All Bodies, All Foods, presented by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. We want to create a space for all bodies to come together authentically and purposefully to discuss various areas that impact us on a cultural and relational level. We believe that all bodies and all foods are welcome. We would love for you to join us on this journey. Let's learn together. All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us again today. Um, We have a very special guest on uh, the show with us today. It is Ms. Paula Edwards Gayfield, LCMHCS, LPC, CEDSS. She is a regional assistant vice president for the Renfrew Center. Ms. Edwards Gayfield oversees the clinical and administrative operations of the Atlanta, Georgia, Los Angeles, California, Orlando, Florida, and West Palm Beach, Florida locations. She also serves as co-chair for the Renfrew's Diversity and Inclusion Task Force, um, a licensed therapist or a licensed professional counselor in Oklahoma and licensed clinical mental health counselor supervisor in North Carolina. She received her master's degree in counseling from UNC at Charlotte. Ms. Edwards Gayfield has extensive experience in the treatment of eating disorders with special interest in women's issues, relationship concerns, depression and anxiety, self-esteem, and body image. Ms. Edwards Gayfield is an advocate for the awareness of eating disorders affecting Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Ms. Edwards Gayfield is a frequent presenter at local and national conferences, primarily discussing eating disorders and diversity, and she is a member of several professional organizations, a certified eating disorder specialist and approved supervisor of IADEP, and is the former co-chair of the African-American Eating Disorder Professionals Committee. She also contributed a chapter in the recently published book, Treating Black Women with Eating Disorders, A Clinician's Guide. So Paula, thank you for being here. That was so great to hear and read all of your bio. Thank you, Ashley. I was thinking as you were reading it, like, wow, that's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's awesome. I I love that you have all of this experience that you're bringing in with you. And so again, just thank you on behalf of Sam and myself for being with us on the podcast today. And we would love to jump in and just kind of ask, how did you get started in the field of eating disorders and how did you make your way to Renfrew? It's kind of a big question. It is, but um, let's see, how much time do we have? Uh, what I was saying, right, like once I decided that I wanted to be a therapist, I knew that I wanted to work with like adolescent girls, young adult women. I, you know, I would frequently observe people stating like, oh, they're just teenagers and, you know, as if they yeah. were being dismissive of sort of like their voice, their emotions, and just overall their experiences in life. And so Mm -hmm. sort of that dismissal of she's just a teenager was Mm -hmm. really like I wanted to empower them Um, because, you know, they're people too. And wanting that desire to assist in empowering them to honor their voices and respect their emotions in an effort to build self-esteem, but also self-acceptance and Mm -hmm. self-compassion. And so, you know, when I think about those things, they're like the pillars of body image, like, right. And so 
that was um, really what my goal and desire was. So prior to my employment with the Renfrew Center, I attended a body image workshop that was actually presented by the Renfrew Center. And it was in that training that I found sort of like my calling, my job. Mm -hmm. I went home and told my partner that we have to move to Florida because I found my job. And he is like, (laughs) we're not moving to Florida. (laughs) Um, And so um, pretty much everyone who knew me knew that that was sort of what I decided I was going to do. And so treating eating disorder patients really has given me the opportunity to work with my desired population and to address like the concerns that are prevalent, you know, to so many individuals, you know, regardless of age. And that's sort of what led me to eating disorders in Renfrew. That's awesome. How long have you been at the Renfrew Center, Paula? Goodness gracious. Seven (laughs) I have been with, let's see, April, I just, I guess, celebrated my 15th year. With oh, congrats. congrats. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a long time tenured, like, person now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. so, yeah. Yeah. I actually started off as a primary therapist in Renfrew. So, yeah. Okay. Wow. Which location did you work at? Charlotte. So, Charlotte's my home. Gotcha. My baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Charlotte site and was there until I relocated in 2015. Gotcha. Wow. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, you. it's so interesting, Paul. It, it, it caught my attention when you said that you went to a rent for training and mm-hmm. it was like a sign or your calling. And I have heard that before. Oh, I've nice. heard professionals say you know, I went to a training and then I decided I wanted to work there. But I'm curious, do you remember anything about that training or what was it about that training that you're thinking, this is where I need to be? Yeah, I, um, I, I believe it's because it sort of embodied the opportunities that I thought would be present. And so here in my mind, here's this age population, you know, adolescents into adulthood. Um, But then also overall general mental health concerns, you know, not only addressing body image, which is sort of what my thought was like body image, self-esteem, self-acceptance, but also knowing that there was the component of depression, anxiety, other mental health concerns. And it wasn't just sort of one focus. And I don't know that I would have said, oh, eating disorders is what it was, but hearing this presentation and sort of thinking about people as a whole, here was this population that I knew was like, okay, these are, these are the people, you know, that I want to be able to support. Right. Right. I love that. I'm thinking of, you know, when we're in school, I don't know if you all had this experience when you were in your master's program, but I had the experience of at some point in one of the semesters, one of the uh, professors asking us to write a paper, of course, on like our target population. And I just feel like you have no idea. And at the time, I don't even remember who I wrote about, but I've also been in the field for five years and would I, I don't know that I started out thinking, yes, eating disorders is gonna, who I'm going to treat. It kind of came naturally through some of the work that I was doing. And it's just been an incredible population to work with. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. um, Ashley, I, um, I was a teacher in a former life all for a year and a half. 
Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I, it was sort of purposeful for the reason that I went and got certified to teach. And mm-hmm. I taught high school. And so yeah. it was actually while I was teaching, I had a student who was experiencing some things that I felt limited in my ability to support her as a teacher. And and then even though we would make the referral to the, you know, the school counselor, they're limited in -hmm. what they can do as well. And so that was one of the, the, um, things that really solidified like Mm -hmm. why I wanted to work with this population. And again, going back to, uh, they're just teenagers and things getting dismissed versus there are people who have emotions and thoughts and experiences and they need support too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Paula, you've also done a lot of advocacy work um, specifically for, um, you know, with eating disorders and how they affect black, indigenous and people of color. I was hoping you could talk a little more about that, Um, especially because, you know, eating disorders, it's not really covered in grad school very well, in my opinion. Right. There's more training and education that's absolutely needed, not only in the mental health field, but in the medical field. And then on top of it, you know, how eating disorders affect certain populations. There's even less on that. And yeah. you do a lot of work around that. It'd be, it, it would be great to share today. Thank you, Sam. Um, I guess I would say I wish I could do more. I know that there's more to do and I look forward to those opportunities because you're absolutely correct. We don't learn about eating disorders in graduate school. We don't necessarily focus on specific populations and there is still very much a belief about who eating disorders impact. Um, with respect to the advocacy work, I, I really appreciate the opportunities that I've had within Renfrew um, to do trainings. I think that's mm-hmm. been definitely one of the um, primary opportunities to create advocacy. And so whether that's via trainings to therapists, dietitians, medical professionals, um, being able to really connect with them and I just, college school counseling, you know, everywhere, Mm -hmm. but just thinking about being able to identify not just sort of eating disorders, but also, as you mentioned, Sam, how eating disorders may show up in different populations, especially amongst people of color. Um, So definitely in that way, but I, I really believe with educating clinicians and dietitians, people who are also doing some outpatient work, that helps to increase not only their education and awareness, but access to care amongst, you know, for people of color. I realize that not everyone is able to go into a treatment center, not everyone is seeking treatment, but my hope is that if we can educate, you know, the ind- individual who may be meeting with someone for whatever reason that mm-hmm. maybe they're a little bit more aware of some of the signs and symptoms, you know, that can happen amongst eating disorders or, you know, or at least to make them question a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. The other way, which I've been so like proud of and happy is offering an, a support group uh, to, again, to individuals who may question if they have an eating disorder. I've also allowed it to be where maybe there's some significant body image concerns or some disordered eating patterns, but providing this outpatient support group that is available throughout 
the country. And having a space to sort of figure this out, to talk with other people of color and, you know, sort of have a place that feels welcoming and inviting. And even though they could be taking a risk sharing this information, with someone mm-hmm. for the first time, my hope is that then we can get them to a place where they can get the treatment that they need or the support that they need that goes beyond the, the support group that we're offering. Um, and then also, again, I think um, being able to offer not just the trainings to professionals, but networking opportunities. I'm going to call it networking, just for lack of a better word. But these opportunities where they can have some difficult conversations and ask questions, you know, that they may have regarding um, BIPOC individuals, almost, I suppose, like a peer consultation. And Mm -hmm. I think creating those opportunities also just, you know, has been a part of the advocacy, you know, opportunities that have been blessed to be a part of. Yeah. Yes. So with these trainings, Paula, you know, talking about how training folks to spot how eating disorders might show up differently in certain populations. Could you say more about that? Because I think our audience is probably thinking, oh gosh, I don't know how eating disorders show up differently. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you be able to share a little bit about that? Some of the things you teach? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, you know, of course, identifying sort of the DSM-5 and acknowledging the criteria for each of the diagnoses. And um, we all are aware that, you know, other specified feeding and eating disorder is like the biggest catchment of any eating disorder diagnosis. And part of that is because of potentially like subclinical presentations, that they don't meet full criteria for like anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder. And so... But I, what I believe that may happen amongst people of color, let me take a step back. It doesn't mean that people of color don't get diagnosed with anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. But when I think about some of those subclinical or maybe they're not meeting full criteria, is that they may only present with some behaviors. For mm-hmm. example, what if they're just using laxatives and mm-hmm. they're not identifying um, any binge behaviors? So mm-hmm. they wouldn't really be looked at as, you know, like a, a patient that's struggling with bulimia. But mm-hmm. then also, If someone is aware that they're utilizing laxatives, they may not even think to consider, is this um, disordered behaviors, unhealthy behaviors? Mm -hmm. It just may be like, oh, you need to stop using laxatives. This is not good for you sort of response. But really beginning to explore kind of the why they're using laxatives, the frequency that they're using laxatives, even Mm -hmm. if they're using it per directed, you know, by the box, sort of what's what's sort of behind the why they're utilizing the um the the laxatives or diuretics or diet pills mm-hmm. as well. And so I think once clinicians become aware of some of those things, and again, this should happen in all individuals, not just BIPOC, but just sort right. of speaking that this is something that I've noticed. Um, But having those sort of conversations and then if you can open up that door about sort of the tell me a little bit more about sort of the what's happening that you're utilizing laxatives, 
being able to start exploring maybe their beliefs about food and food-related beliefs, what are some of the messages, not only that they've adopted mm-hmm. societally, but maybe that they've inherited via family or support systems as well. And I think mm-hmm. if we're willing to spend a little bit more time, ask questions a little bit different way, or think about some of our questions outside of the box of what we may typically do in an assessment, that may give a better picture of here's some disordered patterns that are present. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, yeah. the media does such an awful job of perpetuating, <laughs> you know, the stereotypical eating disorder client. And mm-hmm. right. you might have someone in your office who has OSFED. And it always surprises me that there are a lot of professionals out there and the public in general who really don't know a lot about OSFED. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're like, what does that stand for? Wait, what, what's night eating syndrome? What What's purging disorder? What are these things? So it's so, um, it's really important that you're doing mm-hmm. these trainings. Thank um, you. Yeah. Thank you. I, I was thinking as you were talking and my sister would kill me <laughs> for saying this, <laughs> but you know, it's sort of that sense of, um, you know, and I'm sure you all have had this experience. Again, this is not only isolated to BIPOC individuals, but when people learn about what I do, there's like, oh, clearly I don't have an eating disorder. And there's just, to your point, Sam, about there's still just this picture in their mind about what an eating disorder looks like. Um, The reason I said my sister would kill me is because even when I first started working, you know, there is such a diet mentality. And her thought would be like, hmm, I wonder what are some of the people doing that then I could lose weight. And it's just like, you do not want an eating disorder. Being able to still accept yourself in the body that you're in is really what's important. And I think if that's something that you can focus on versus the the desire to lose weight, maybe we'll get mm-hmm. to a different outcome. But that would be one of the things that she would say to me. I'm like, you do not want an eating disorder. Like mm-hmm. people think, but again, they're still then only picturing that individual who may be struggling with anorexia, which is the smallest subset of all diagnoses. It really right. is. Yeah. I think, I mean, just to go to your point, Sam, I think the, the media society, um, we, I don't know if we are idolizing that body type. I don't know if we're, if we can see the dramatic shift in body change quicker. And so that's why we're, we, you know, but we see anorexia as kind of this, like, this is the main one. And there's so many other diagnoses. We know binge eating is three to five times more prevalent than anorexia is, right? And we know OSFED, Sam, like you were saying with these um, night eating syndrome, purging syndrome, um, we know that that's there too. And we know that bulimia is two to three times as more common than anorexia too. And so, um, educating. I mean, I think we all need a little bit more (laughs) education around this, you know, and just to say what you were saying, Paula, it doesn't, it doesn't only fall on your BIPOC clients, but it, it does. Um, I actually have a a study that I kind of wanted to read to you and, and give some statistics to you and just kind of get your thoughts because we do see it present in our, um, BIPOC population. And we also, often do not see um, as much of a diagnosis, though. Absolutely. Um, right? So I there was a study, Nita just published this study, um, so I'm going to read it just so um, our listeners 
know kind of the context. Okay. So, so it says when presented with identical case studies demonstrating disordered eating symptoms in white, Hispanic, and African American women, clinicians were asked to identify if the woman's eating behavior was problematic. Um, so 44%, so nearly half, identified the white women's behavior as problematic. 41% identified the Hispanic woman's behavior as problematic. And only 17% identified the black woman's behavior as problematic. And it says these clinicians were also less likely to recommend that African-American women should receive professional help. Um wow. Right? So, like, clearly there is a disconnect somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just curious what your thoughts are, specifically in your advocacy work with the BIPOC community and hearing this information, Paula. Yeah. So, initial response is just disheartening. It just, it really is. And unfortunately, it reinforces the experiences that BIPOC individuals may have when it comes to healthcare profession, mental health providers, where there's not a lot of trust in what they're stating, or even that they would be listened to. And, And so here's like a perfect example of, Mm -hmm. you know, to find that 44% of these clinicians found the white woman's behavior problematic, exact same clinical presentation minus race to say 17%. Yeah. yeah. So it is, it feels like a very much an uphill battle. Again, when I'm talking with prospective clients or the public that are not the professional clinicians, it really is trying to encourage them to, in many ways, take a risk, you know, to seek treatment, to talk to a professional, um, to even advocate for themselves and being able to say to someone, I don't think you're hearing me. You know, and and if that person isn't hearing you, do you have any referrals? In addition to, as you mentioned, there's the National Eating Disorder Association. There's other professional eating disorder organizations where people could reach out to, as well as the Renfrew Center. Even if you don't know if you have an eating disorder, it just may be, this is what I'm kind of struggling with. Can you point me in the right direction? Um, When it comes to clinicians, you know, one of the things I've just been so appreciative of is the participation and attendance for the different trainings, the networking opportunities, and and just um, non-BIPOC individuals, as well as other people of color who may not fall into uh, I think sometimes not all people of color acknowledge as people of color. And okay. so, but then okay. to acknowledge that even I, as a black woman, I don't know everything about an Asian person, of, a person of Asian descent or someone of Hispanic descent. And so mm-hmm. being able to take these risks and have these conversations that may be uncomfortable because it looks as though I don't know what I'm doing yet it's my opportunity to educate myself, learn a little bit more, and make sure that I'm able to adequately um, support and offer services to the general population. Yeah, yeah. That that reminds me of, Paula, I know that during the Renfrew Conference every year, you've hosted a conversation, a group that's called Comfortably Uncomfortable. I love yes. that title. Thank and you. Um, when COVID hit, it went virtual. And I know you've hosted many of them, I think, throughout the year. And mm-hmm. 
I'm really intrigued by this concept of the difference between cultural competence and cultural humility, because Mm -hmm. I think in graduate school, you know, we're taught you have to be culturally competent. You have to be culturally competent. And it's, Mm -hmm. and it's like, okay, but there's a difference between how you're actually putting that into action in your work and humility, cultural humility. So would you be able to share a little bit about the two of the, you know, those two concepts? Yes. Um, I, so I think, well, for me, when I think about cultural competence, um, it's almost this message of I've learned something and I'm good. I'm done, you know? And yes, do I think people need to become culturally competent? Maybe I would even change that word to culturally aware Mm -hmm. and, um, and begin to take advantage of opportunities to learn and educate themselves and, in many ways, increase awareness of what they don't know so that then it helps to, you know, encourage them maybe to seek opportunities to, you know, increase their understanding. And so when I think about cultural competence, and I think that's sort of what I kind of think about in general, like I've went to this training, I've learned something and, and then people may think, yep, I'm culturally competent now because I've learned this information. (laughs) Right. Like as if, as if there's an end point. It's like, yep, exactly. check the box. I'm yeah, confident, good to go. But actually, there, I don't think there really is an end point. I think Which, we're always yeah. learning and always mm-hmm. n- there's always that need to reflect on our own biases and the messages we've internalized. And that work never mm-hmm. ends. Mm-hmm. That's where cultural humility comes in. I Being say. willing to acknowledge that I need to continuously learn what I don't know, but also actively taking advantage and putting yourself into situations where you can learn, where you can grow and not just relying on your Mm -hmm. client or maybe even your peers, if you have peers of color, to just provide that education. It's you, the individual who are seeking those opportunities to learn, to grow, as well as to say, I don't know this. And so how can I continue to um, immerse myself in trainings and even maybe putting myself physically in a space to really Mm -hmm. learn what it's like um, amongst other um, people of color. It's interesting because also, you know, there are so many terms that are increasingly aware and, um, and I'm sure some may go beyond humility, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm going to like kind of say them without defining them. I don't know if that's really fair or not, but there are things like, you know, being willing to be, um, culturally respectful, cultural adaptation, maybe even culturally responsive care. When we're thinking Mm. about what we do as clinicians, that competence would maybe kind of like, I've learned this, check the box, as you mentioned, but really knowing that I need to go beyond that. And that to me is the cultural humility. How do I humble myself into, you know, I don't know this information. And Mm. if I'm really trying to support any one population, but honestly, even Mm -hmm. to do clinical work, because you, Mm -hmm. I realize you can kind of pick and choose who you work with if you're in private practice, but you know, oftentimes Mm -hmm. that's not where people land. And so how can I support the prospective clients that I may have? Yeah. I think that brings up the idea 
for me, it brings up the idea that there are these blind spots that we have, right? Both both individually as providers, but also collectively, like thinking about the eating disorder world. Um, Paula, I have been lucky enough to attend um, multiple of your comfortably uncomfortable conversations, um, <laughs> specifically at the conference. I rem- I've gone every year that I've gone to the conference, and I always value that. And um, I think I remember like you have pictures and a timeline that you tend to put up. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like Mm -hmm. on the wall and yeah. And we, and we would have these great rich conversations. And then I have to tell you, I attended one that you did virtually earlier this year and it, it struck me. I mean, in a way that I don't know that the, uh, that I had experienced before, you know, and specifically in my group. So you had broken us out into groups and you had given us concepts to talk about. And I kind of want to share your concepts, but I kind of don't because like that's the whole thing about your, you know, your presentation. I want to respect that because I want people to come. Um, That's okay. Okay. We can, yeah, we can talk about some teasers. So, well, one was cultural humility versus the cultural competency. Um, and what, and actually specifically within that one, what the conversation that kind of happened in my group was we talked about some of the blind spots, basically. Mm-hmm. And I, and some of this, I want to say, what I, it has never crossed my mind before. And, and that left me with so many feelings, right? It left me with like, whoa, where have I been hiding under a rock? Mm-hmm oh my goodness, I need to expand my awareness and my view so much. And just kind of that continue, I I am never done evolving. I am never done learning, you know? But some of those points that I just want to bring up because I thought were so interesting was um, someone brought in the idea of mealtimes, specifically Mm -hmm. at eating disorder treatment facilities. And specifically mentioned a lot of the meals are catered to um, just kind of the the white traditional um, meal Mm -hmm. and talked about, you know, can we bring in other cultural influences in meal times? Yes. right? Can we bring in different flavors and different spices and different things? And that is something to me that I literally had never even thought about, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think it's beautiful. I loved that idea. Um, And I'm trying to think there was another concept that was brought up. Um, Let's see. Oh, looking at the EDE, the EDEQ and how it was really written for um, cis white females um, and how it doesn't bring in um, cultural awareness essentially, right? Um, So these are these are huge blind spots that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just even thinking about, you know, the, the prior question I asked you about um, not, you know, eating disorder professionals not identifying as many African-American women to go into treatment. Mm-hmm. We have blind spots. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious, like, um, your thoughts about those. And obviously the work that you're doing, this comfortably uncomfortable, is just so powerful to me. And I, I thank you so much for doing it, but I'm just curious what your other thoughts about blind spots or have you seen, are there others that you've seen? I have only mentioned two. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure there's more. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. I really appreciate um, your appreciation for the conversations. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, I would agree with you, even for myself as a participant, just sort of hearing the, the richness of the conversations, as well as the vulnerability amongst mm-hmm. the you know participants as well to be uncomfortable and yeah. ask you know engage in these discussions and share their experiences yes blind spots um definitely as you mentioned like looking at how meals are how do we continue to incorporate you know um, diversity amongst meals appreciation even not only just in the treatment milieu that everyone is consuming but even as our um, dietitians or our therapists, mm-hmm. how are we acknowledging those things and supporting our clients in terms of how, you know, it may mm-hmm. fit with whatever it is that we're working with because we want them to experience and, you know, be connected in their communities. Um, before I share another blind spot, one of the things that really came up for me, I've had a client mm-hmm. before who, um, who shared, they appreciated eating in program with um, like a fork and a knife and things like mm-hmm. that, because some of the meals that they consume based on their culture was eaten by hand. Yes. And so wow. interestingly, eating things with a fork and a knife helped them to really monitor their intake compared yeah. to if I was eating with my hand, how can I really notice what I'm picking up? And it was just yeah. sort of one of those things where like, Oh, Oh, you know, I recall kind of taking that back to our admissions team and really using some of these things as like prompts that when we're doing assessments on clients that, again, we can start to ask some of those questions Mm -hmm. if we're noticing those things. So to me, that was a significant blind spot. I never would have thought like I'm trying to portion by using a fork or a knife. Um, I think other ways that, um, I mean, oh gosh, blind spots. I think when we're talking about size and size diversity, um, just sort of acknowledging that we all have biases and we all acknowledge, or excuse me, are subjective to stereotypes. As much as we may not want to um, acknowledge that maybe that's what I kind of believe about a population, we are a society that labels people like that's just what we do and and so oftentimes those stereotypes fall into the labels and the beliefs that we have about any specific group and so I think if we're not willing as professionals to acknowledge that I may have a bias I may be responding to this person in a stereotypical way that then that to me is a significant blind spot and that goes back to not being diagnosed, but also maybe not even addressing body image issues, you know, or, you know, the way that I talk about body image, or I assume, you know, that there's an acceptance of whatever size, shape, weight you may be, if you're a person that's in a larger body as a black woman or Latina woman, because, you know, there's this belief where, oh, they're okay with curves or, you know, but yet, yes. You know, could it be a protective factor? Sure. But then we're still making a blanket statement about a group of people. And we really have to individualize everyone's, you know, experience. Um, I also wanted to state, you had mentioned about the EDE and EDEQ. You know, yes, a lot of assessments are not normed on people of color. And you're right. It is going to be mostly tested on cis 
cis white females. And honestly, Ashley, I would even extend that to a lot of the evidence-based practices. So when we start talking about, you know, any of the treatment modalities are best practices for whatever mental health concern, again, who, you know, who was that normed on? And so even though I think different assessments and treatment modalities may be great places to start, Mm-hmm. Use them for information, just sort of acknowledging mm-hmm. that if there's this assessment, some of these questions may be applicable, but only mm-hmm. use it for information. But again, being willing to go beyond making mm-hmm. sure that you know the questions mm-hmm. in those assessments so that you can kind of identify mm-hmm. where those places are that it's not being inclusive of a, you know, the population that um of a BIPOC population. And then also when we're talking about some of the evidence-based practices, then thinking about what do you need to marry that with? You know, are you looking at like a relational cultural approach? Are you thinking about any sort of cultural um, education and models like minority stress model or, you know, Mm -hmm. being able to identify um, just sort of where you are in your own identity development as a clinician? And I want to state, because we all have culture, like every one of us. And Mm -hmm. so I think if we can do that, maybe that will help to create a greater awareness of how we can apply something to um, the the population in which we serve. Yeah. Gosh, I I feel like my mind is being blown (laughs) by everything. And I'm so appreciative of it. But I mean, that makes so much sense continuing really to evaluate where we are and what we know and don't know clearly. Humility. Yeah, that <laughs> humility. <Sorry>. Yep. <laughs> right. We don't know what we don't know. And that's Absolutely. a really important realization. Um, wow. Yeah. So Paula, you you do so much training and educating and supervising. And I'm curious for the sake of this podcast, the eating disorder professionals out there who are listening, what do you think are the big takeaways that you would want them to have when, you know, they shut this podcast off and they walk away from it? <laughs> I, what do you, I mean, I, and I'm even curious, what are, what are some of the common questions that come through when you do trainings? Where do you think the big gaps are? Yeah. What do you, what do you, what do you want them to walk away with? Um, you know, be curious, mm-hmm. I think is probably one of the major um, things that I would say, be curious, because mm-hmm. I think if we maintain a sense of curiosity, then we're willing to not only ask our clients questions, but also hopefully we're seeking information, you know, that then we can sort of answer some of the questions that may arise if I am being curious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also that your client is the expert on them, you know, mm-hmm. and so I I really look at treatment or therapy in general as a collaborative approach. I mm-hmm. frequently say to my clients, like, you're the expert on you and I know what I know. And so we're going to work together to sort of <laughs> figure this out. Yeah. yeah. And so that's sort of where I try to approach my work with clients. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that then helps me to create that curiosity, but it mm-hmm. also helps me to listen a little mm-hmm. bit more 
I can still, again, I can take the information that I know or what I know about a, a treatment modality or sort of, um, you know, what any theoretical orientation may say about, you know, how whatever it may be um, mm -hmm. develops. But also, it allows me to have a little bit more compassion. And I, I say that because when I think about like a, and this isn't to knock CBT by any means, but even when I think about sort of a cognitive behavioral approach or even like what we do at Renfrew, when we're looking at like our thoughts, our emotional experiences and acknowledging that our emotions are made up of our thoughts, our behaviors, as well as our physical sensations. And oftentimes, and I'm gonna speak specifically as a black woman. So I want to okay. state that. Okay. But I think sometimes when black individuals or as a black woman may say something, you know, there's like, well, is that true? It's almost like this reality testing type of mm -hmm. thing that happens, or maybe there's the encouragement of like, you know, this just kind of how it is with radical acceptance. And I think that's where you're going to lose your client. Like, mm -hmm. you know, so I think that sense of acknowledging if I am continuing to increase my understanding of BIPOC populations, then my hope is that I'll start to explore some of the historical stuff that may happen, the intergenerational things yeah. that are passed down. Hopefully I'm acknowledging that there is systemic racism, you know, yeah. throughout our society yeah. that maybe instead of me going to a place of sort of challenging that client, I can mm -hmm. incorporate that into maybe how my work may be. I still may want to work with that client on, okay, so yes, these have been things that have influenced you and, and absolutely this can be true, but maybe how is this now impacting your eating disorder? How is this impacting your mood? And then maybe coming to a place of, you know, we're working out what's a more adaptive way of dealing with the emotional experiences that they have without sort of saying to them that what they believe or what they think isn't yeah. really true. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I really answered your question or not, Sam, but I think that's sort of what drives me when I'm thinking about any of the work with BIPOC client, clients in general, but definitely BIPOC, like trust them, listen to them or any mm -hmm. sort of marginally diverse population, trust them yeah. and listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, w I was going to say, Paula, so this morning I did a training with someone and one of the um, things I shared with them is that we know research has, sh has told us that women that come from less affluent homes are 153% more likely to exhibit bulimia um, presentations than women that don't come from lower affluent, lower income homes. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about that and talking about um, just kind of the intersection there of maybe some even food insecurity and how mm -hmm. um, if there is a food insecure home and then um, and then payday happens, right? How mm -hmm. they're, they're it, it makes sense to me, the bulimic behaviors, because then with the food insecurity might lead to hoarding once food is available, which mm -hmm. could lead to those binge-like behaviors. But then, um, because culturally, like we don't, right, like we've got to get rid of it, then that mm -hmm. leads to that bulimic or compensatory behavior, right? Absolutely. And so I was kind of explaining this, and one of the providers I was talking with at the end of the talk um, came up to me and just 
kind of thanked me for sharing this information. And she identifies within the BIPOC uh, population. And she mentioned to me that kind of exactly what you're saying, she would advocate for herself when she knew she needed treatment. She knew she had um, some bulimic symptoms. They were very innocently, um, you know, they they kind of innocently came up. And I think some mm-hmm. of it was from, um, you know, environment and, and kind of how she grew up, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it was really hard for her to advocate for herself. And so thinking about her specifically, what would you want anybody listening that is a potential client or a community member, what would you want them to take away um, Mm -hmm. from your conversation? Because we know that they might have to fight a little bit harder to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that's a really great question. And it's interesting because I have so many thoughts, but none at all, like at the same time, because there is like, I don't know that there's just one answer. Um, but I guess what I would say is trust you. I, I realize that you may have experiences where you've been questioned or there've been doubt and, and we kind of look at professionals as being the experts. Right. And so, And so then if they're sort of saying that's not a problem or they're not asking you, then you can walk away like, okay, I'm just sort of making this up and it's not as big of a deal as I think it may be. But be willing to fire that person. I'm sorry, that may not yes. be the best answer. <laughs> no, I love that. Fire yeah. that person and go to the next person and keep asking. Because I really think if you know that something is wrong or something doesn't feel right, even if it's not, this diagnosable thing, it doesn't feel right to you. And so to me, that's what's important. If I don't feel right or if I don't feel great about something that's happening, I deserve. And so you deserve as a potential person that's seeking support, you deserve to be heard and listened to and keep trying, you know, just don't stop there. Find someone that maybe you feel like is an advocate for you. If you're open to sharing that information for with them about what you're struggling with, but keep trying. Like, I guess that's what I would really say. Don't give up, but yeah. also to fire that person too. <laughs> and I say this because I, I, if I could tell just one little story, anecdotally, yeah. I had a doctor in Charlotte and I love this doctor. I loved her. Okay. She was a referral from another, a friend of mine. She loved her. And you know, when you go to a new doctor, they are asking you all these questions about your history. Mm-hmm. And she's asking me these questions. And I honestly feel like I am answering them to the best of my ability. But she would sort of ask them again in a little bit of a different way. And so I sort of felt like, like, (laughs) does she not believe me? Does she think I'm lying? Does she think I don't know what I should know? And oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, I should know these things and I don't. And I was sitting there honestly experiencing some of this, like, but my friend referred me. She said she was a great doctor, you know. Mm -hmm. And so finally I said to this doctor, I'm answering the questions to the best of my ability. And when you're sort of re-asking them, I'm starting to feel like I'm stupid or something. And she's like, no, I am just so shocked that you know all of this. So talk about the two totally different experiences that was happening between me and this doctor. And she was a black doctor. So it wasn't even about, you know, but yeah, just the two experiences that were happening. And so speak up. 
would yeah. be the other thing that I would say. Speak up if you don't feel mm-hmm. like you're heard and listened to, then go to the next person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you, next. That's awesome, Paula. Thank you so much. Um, You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I think we're we're kind of coming to the end. Um, I know. Let's see. I've got your book here, um, or the the book that you contributed a chapter, treating Black women with eating disorders, a clinical guide. So obviously, if you're a clinician, like definitely go out get this. Um, Are there any other resources for? clinicians or for, um, like I said, our community members or our um, potential clients that might be listening as well that just like that go-to resource that you would suggest? (laughs) Yeah. um, So unfortunately, they're limited in nature, especially if you're thinking more of a clinical type of handbook, you know, just for lack of a better Sure. <laughs> Terms for that. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. say, I will acknowledge that, you know, I think that definitely people who've written um, some different books are trying to incorporate um, information on, you know, diverse populations. But something specific, I would say there's not enough resources. Okay. What I would also say, though, there are people who are writing books, whether it was about their experience mm-hmm. um, and although I'm frequently reluctant to recommend books that are sort of personal to someone because it's their story, I just don't want clients to sort of over identify with the author. So that's sort of my personal stance. Um, I still think maybe if it kind of creates a sense of, okay, this can happen or this does happen amongst people of color, then I would say, you know, maybe there are some of those books that are out there that may be helpful. I don't know if you were um, wanting like titles of books or any, any resources you have. I think I've heard, is this a book, the courage to be uncomfortable? I've heard about that one in this, um, maybe developing our cultural humility, but not sure if you've heard that book before. I have not, no. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's definitely books on, as you mentioned, like mm-hmm. developing cultural humility, increasing mm-hmm. cultural awareness, mm-hmm. even, you know, even things that aren't clinical that really start to encourage people to think about um, privilege, unearned advantages, because mm-hmm. these are the things that are influencing all of us every single day. Yeah. And um, so I think absolutely there are books that reference cultural um, approaches and looking at racial diversity and learning about different populations mm-hmm. that absolutely would be supportive. Awesome. But for that, for that prospective client, that's where I would say, you know, there may be some books that maybe help <laughs> to sort yeah. of just normalize what yeah. you're experiencing. I just, I wanted to make our audience aware also that uh, Paula, you've written blogs for Renfrew um, yes. on cultural humility and cultural awareness. So they can be found right on our website um, under the Thank blog you. section. I, yeah. I often direct, when I do my own trainings for clinicians, I direct them to your blogs. I hope that's okay, Paula. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> it just means I need to do a little bit more. That's, you know. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah. So, Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Paula, thank you so much. This has been so lovely to chat with you. And I hope um, 
listeners, I hope this is some good, rich content for you to take away. And um, just want to thank you all again for being here and joining us today. Thank you, Ashley and Sam. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening with us today on All Bodies, All Foods, presented by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. We're looking forward to you joining us next time as we continue these conversations.